May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So last week in the sermon slot, we, uh, I did a little bit of a sermon, and then we did a thing called Electio Divina, which is a way of praying the scripture rather than reading the scripture. And uh, I talked about a little bit where it came from, from uh, Benedict, the founder of the first, well, the father of monasticism in the, in the West. And, um, and the way we used it was to read the scripture, the gospel reading three times and to have a different question uh, after each time for people to reflect on. So the first time, the question was, what word or phrase stood out for you? And I wonder what, for those of us who were there, what word or phrase stood out for you. For me, the word or phrase was, and this is actually from the message, so this is the version we heard the second time round. It's who you are, not what you say and do that counts. Your true being brings over into true words and deeds. I mean, it grabbed me for a whole lot of reasons, but I guess for me, it's who you are, not what you say or do that counts, has been a kind of an ongoing revelation. Uh, a long time ago, I was part of a, well, I went to a youth ministry training event which focused a lot on what we did and what we did, really. It taught us tricks on how to be good youth workers. Uh, it was an ecumenical event, uh, which was a kind of uh, interesting um, Alliance between Baptists and Anglicans and Methodists and Presbyterians and Conservatives and more liberal people, and it exploded apart. And uh, so the kind of slightly more liberal group got together and said, well, we will continue running a youth ministry training event, but the focus changed from what we did to who we are, because who we are was what counted. And in supervision, I can remember wondering what supervision was, and it seemed to focus on what we did and what we said. And then I went off to a supervisor's training event so that I could use my supervision uh, more helpfully. And the people running it began it by saying, supervision is about who we are, because that's what counts, not what we do or say. As it says in the message, your true being brings over into true words and deeds. It's who we are that counts. Well, I found that very helpful as I thought about this week's reading, Jesus in the Wilderness. It's the reading we hear every Sunday, every first Sunday in Lent. It'd be really boring if it was the reading we heard every Sunday. And it's pretty difficult having it every year on the first Sunday in Lent. This is the eighth time in a row I've had to preach on it here. On the first Sunday in Lent. And usually we title it, and it is titled in the NRSV that I read from today, The Temptation of Jesus, or Jesus Being Tempted in the Desert, which I have to say is really misleading. Because when we talk about Jesus being tempted, the focus then is on what he does and what he says. And really, it's who he is that counts. And this, as a number of commentators have, have said, would much more clearly be titled the testing of Jesus. Even our, even our colleague talked about temptation. So what is temptation? Well, as I said in the pew sheet, it's defined as a strong urge or desire to have or do something 
or something that causes a strong urge or desire to have or do something, especially something that is bad or wrong or unwise. Being tempted is about what we do or say. And it feels like when we read this as Jesus being tempted, that Jesus is being tempted to be naughty. And when we apply it to ourselves at Lent, well, we're we're tempted to do something naughty like eat too much or forget what we've decided we're going to give up during Lent and then we do it, so we're being naughty like... Well, I forgot that I'd given up playing computer games during Lent and on Ash Wednesday I played computer games and then I went, ah, day one and I've already been tempted and I failed. This is terrible. But actually the story of Jesus in the wilderness isn't about him being tempted to be naughty. You can read it that way, but it's not really. This is the classic story that happens in literature with the hero who is tested. And the test is about who he is. It's who he is, not what he does or says that that counts. Because Jesus' true being will brim over into his true words and actions. So if we put the story back into the gospel, we find that just before this, Jesus has been baptised by John. And as he has been baptised, Jesus hears a voice saying, You are my son, the beloved. So Jesus is the son of God. The question is, what does it mean for Jesus to be God's son, the beloved? Who will he be? Now, when we hear the word son of God, we immediately come up with a whole lot of uh, images. And we think there is only one way to understand that, don't we? Son of God, that means you are the son of God and you're divine and you have to act in certain ways. Well, the world Jesus lived in, son of God, where there are a whole lot of sons of God. And so the question was, which one of those was he going to be? For example, the emperor of Rome in his title has son of God. That's why people sacrificed to him, because he was the son of God. So was he going to be the son of God like the Roman emperor? And if we read those tests that the devil puts him through, Clearly, that's one of the options. If you, if you do homage to me, I will give you all power and I will give you all these countries, just like I gave them to the Roman emperor. Will you be like him? The little piece that sits between the baptism and uh, the story of Jesus in the wilderness is his whakapapa, his genealogy. Which, finish, which starts with Joseph and goes through to Adam, who is titled Son of God. So, will Jesus be Son of God like Adam? One of the great figures in Scripture is David, King David. And in a number of places he is titled Son of God. And in fact, I think a number of the kings are called Son of God. Will Jesus be Son of God like David? How did Jesus understand who he was? That's at stake. This is a test, not a temptation, a test. Who do you think you are 
now that you are son of God. Now when we read this, in fact one of the commentators talked about, you know, if, is Jesus the son of God or not? But in fact the if in two of those three tests isn't an if, are you or not? It would be much better translated as since. There's no debate that Jesus is son of God. The devil knows that Jesus is the son of God. It's just, what kind of son of God are you going to be? Since you are the son of God... Turn these stones to bread. You're going to be that kind of son of God? And let's face it, given what Jesus then proclaims his mission to be, it would have been super helpful if Jesus could just go around turning lots of stones to loaves of bread. If you're going to release captive, uh, release, proclaim release for the captive, sight for the blind, uh, if you're going to feed the multitudes, being able to do gazillions of these kind of actions... And just provide enough food for everyone. Well that would have been super helpful. But is that who he is? Which I think changes things for us at Lent. Because the question isn't so much about whether we're being tempted to act in certain ways or not. But Lent becomes a time when we are tested in our identity as beloved children of God. Because each one of us here is a beloved child of God. So what does that mean for us? And how are we being, being tested in that? So as an example, there's a bit of a situation in the Franciscan world. And, well, I am tempted to react in certain ways. In fact, I spent too much time last night awake thinking of ways that I could react to that. All of which, well most of which, would be unhelpful. The real issue isn't whether I'm being tempted or not. The real issue is that I am being tested in my understanding of who I am as Minister General. Who I am is what's going to really count here. And I have to keep going back to that. Who am I as the Minister General in this situation? My identity is being tested. My identity as a Franciscan. Now in some ways my identity as a Franciscan is, is defined by our principles. I am a member of a society which is a community of those who surrender our lives to Christ and to the service of his people by making our Lord known and loved everywhere, spreading the spirit of love and harmony and living simply through prayer, study and work, in lives marked by humility, love and joy. But what about you? Who are you as beloved children of God? How would you describe that? Lent is a time for us to think about that and to pay attention to the way that that is being tested because it's who you are not what you say or do that counts your true being brims over into true words and deeds so Lent is a time that helps me know who I am on Wednesday night uh, most of you anyone was at the Ash Wednesday service, I was asked to talk about um, 
being Franciscan and Lent. And some of you heard the first half of that sermon two weeks ago. Uh, so that was the dry run of that. And uh, so I thought I'd give you the second half today as a way of talking about how Lent helps us know who we are. So, two weeks ago I talked about the life of Francis and kind of, kind of did a quick summary of some of the themes at the end of that. And I want to suggest today that there are a number of themes that run through Francis's life that help us consider some big questions about who we are in Lent. One of the themes that run through Francis's life is his being overpowered by the transcendence of God. So I think we can go to the maybe the next picture or... That's a nice one. Uh, and in a minute you can go to the last one. Yep. Uh, so God was overwhelmed by the vastness of God, the transcendence of God. As he prayed in the countryside and... Uh, as he prayed before the crucifix at San Damiano, it was the transcendence of God that changed him first of all. And so while we might start prayers with such lofty titles like God, or if we're really feeling verbose, God our Father, or Almighty God, or Father God, Francis would start with things like, O God, most holy, most high, omnipotent, good Lord. It was the vastness of God, the God who was source of all being, the God who was beyond all that he encountered. And so the question that comes to me as I begin Lent is, how small has my God become? How many boundaries have I put around God that makes God understandable, knowable, Manageable? Has God been created in my own image? And am I willing to let the transcendence of God overwhelm me? If my identity is found in God, then the starting point always has to be who is God? And is my God too small? The second theme that comes through is. That, Jesus, uh, that Francis was also overwhelmed by the imminence of God, the closeness of God in Jesus. So we probably should have the second picture up now. And as he encountered the crucified and risen Christ, sure, isn't there another one? So I don't know what happened to the third one. Uh, the third picture is supposed to be the San Damiano cross. So as Francis prayed before that, he was overwhelmed by the, by the love of God for him, for all people and all creation. He knew that he was deeply and profoundly loved and that he was held in that love. He knew that he was a beloved son of God. And as he stood in the glare of that love, that led him to realise that he was the greatest of all sinners. That there was no one 
more undeserving or more unworthy than he was. Which leads to some questions for us. Do we really believe that we are the beloved children of God Most High? Do we believe that? Do we know that? Do we know that we are deeply and profoundly loved? That that is the starting point? And do we live in response to God's infinite and generous compassion? Or do we constantly seek to be good enough? To be worthy of God's forgiveness? Because Francis knew that he could never be good enough. That he could never do anything to justify that love. To be worthy of that love. The best that he could do was respond to that love. Do we live in response to that love or to earn that love? That's a really important question as we begin to engage in some of the Lenten disciplines like prayer. Why do we pray? Some of us might pray more in Lent. Why are we doing that? Are we doing it to be more holy? To be more virtuous? To be more worthy of God's love? Or do we do it in response to that love? To open ourselves to that love? To be in the glare of that love? What's our motivation behind praying? Fasting. A number of us give up things for Lent. Chocolate, coffee. I'm not giving up coffee. I did threaten it one year and my wife said, Bonnie said, no, you are not giving up coffee. I'm not living with that. Do we do that to be a better person? To be... To feel more virtuous. Look at me, I've given up chocolate all through Lent. The end of it. Look at me, I'm a great person. I gave up chocolate all through Lent and I didn't have any. Or do we do it in response to the love that we have already experienced? And do we do it because, like Francis, we embrace, we wish to share those things that separate us from the love of God, the stand between us and love? And being able to respond in love. And that allowed Francis to know the poverty of the world he lived in. And how his life as the son of a wealthy merchant actually added to the poverty of many of those he now lived amongst as a beggar. Do we fast to know the poverty of the world and how how comfortable middle class lives are really built on the poverty of others? And lastly, almsgiving. Do we give alms, give to charities out of a sense of superiority because we're better than those people? Out of our sense of our excess? Or do we give it in response to God? Because God has been enormously generous to us. And so, how can we possibly live except by being generous ourselves? So that question... Do I live to be worthy or do I live in response? It doesn't sound that different, but it actually is very different. Different motivations. And they come out of who we are, how we understand ourselves to be, our identity in Christ. And in our day-to-day lives, do we know that we are the greatest of all sinners? Well, probably not. Most of us probably look around and see all sorts of people who are 
much bigger sinners than us. I mean, just off the top of my head, child molesters, rapists, murderers, they're all much worse people than me. And yet Francis knew that he was the greatest of all sinners, less worthy, less deserving, either, even than them. Which simply means that no one is worthy of God's love, and yet God still loves. And when we set up a hierarchy and say, well, they're less worthy than I, and I'm up here, well, then we say that some people are more worthy, when in fact no one is worthy, because God is God. And that allowed Francis to go to places that others couldn't go. He could go to the sultan in Egypt, because the sultan in Egypt was more worthy than he, Francis, was. And in love, he went to the sultan. And he should have died, but he didn't. And he was able to speak to the sultan. And they deeply impressed each other. When the bishop and mayor of of Assisi were at war with each other, he was able to speak to them both, not because he was more worthy than either of them, but because he was the greatest of all sinners. And that allowed him to speak in truth to them that they needed to stop what they were doing because neither of them were worthy either. They needed to get off their high horses and to just simply know that they were loved by God. He lived peace because of that. So do I see myself as better or more than or more deserving than other people because of my life and my beliefs? Or do I see and treat other people as less deserving? Or do I name, who do I name as outside of God's compassion, God's love, God's generosity? Who do I call an abomination? And finally, Francis was, well, overwhelmed by creation. He knew it was God's gift to us all, that in creation we encounter God, we encounter God's love and God's transcendence. He knew creation was a gift that spoke of God. So I, as a Franciscan, how do I honour God's creation? Do I see it as a means by which I experience God's generosity? Or do I see it as something that can be used and abused because it's just there, inanimate, and the great we're the most important? And if I do see it as a gift, how do I respond to our deliberate and ongoing destruction of the web of life on which this planet on which our lives depend through climate change. What do I need to do in response to that? Maybe all I can do is confess that I am part of that and repent that I have absolutely no idea what to do about it, but to at least acknowledge our role. So Lent is a time that we can reflect on who we are, 
and to reflect on how we are tested. Because it's who we are, not what we say or do that counts. Our true brain brims over into true words and deeds. May this Lent be a time for you to be tested so that you may know your true being. And may your true being brim over into true words and deeds.